Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. Our scripture this morning is from the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. The voice of my beloved, look, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My husband is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the covert of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. His pastures, He pastures his flock among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is another week of a piece of scripture which makes uh, you wonder, where is she going with this? <laughs> when I hear the words read, I can't help but sing Nora Jones' song in my head. Any, anyone else listen to Nora Jones, Come Away With Me? Maybe she was reading the Song of Songs. I don't know. I don't know. Romeo speaks in Act 2, Scene 2. It is my lady, oh, it is my love. Oh, that she knew she were, she speaks, yet she says nothing. What of that? Her eye discourses, I will answer it. I'm too bold, tis not to me, she speaks. Two of the fairest stars in all the heaven, having some business, do entreat her eyes. To twinkle in their spheres till they return. What if her eyes were there, they in her head? The brightness of her cheek would shame those stars. As daylight doth a lamp, her eye in heaven would through airy region stream so bright that birds would sing and think it were not night. See how she leans her cheek upon her hand. Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand that I might touch that cheek. And Juliet responds, I, me. Romeo continues to speak. Oh, speak again, bright angel, for thou art as glorious to this night, being o'er my head as is a winged messenger of heaven unto the white upturned wondering eyes of mortals that fall back to gaze on him when he bestrides the lazy puffing clouds and sails upon the bosom of the air. The literature nerds in the room all know what comes next, right? Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? I can see you mouthing the words, 
This line is perhaps the most famous line in all of English literature, certainly in all of Shakespeare's works. If you're a child of the 90s like me, though, this is one of the most famous lines from the 96 film starring Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio, which we learned a little more about in high school English classes. But no matter where or when your first rendezvous with these clandestine lovers occurred, once you encountered their story, the plight of Romeo and Juliet is nearly impossible to forget. It sears its story on our hearts just as it sears the poetry on our minds. As much as we love that story, We have to wonder, though, how exactly did Romeo and Juliet fall in love? And so deeply, I mean, we know so little about them before this evening at the costume ball, only that their families are embroiled in a long-standing feud. But how did such a life-altering love develop as quickly as theirs? It makes you wonder, maybe there is such a thing as love at first sight. Regardless, these two star-crossed lovers and their fateful encounter at that party that night led the way for one of the most beautiful stories, a powerful story about love and a tragic story, really, of deep-seated generational hatred and anger and division. While the circumstances often change, stories of a quickly arriving, life-altering love emerge throughout all of human history. Before Romeo and Juliet, there were others, including the Song of Songs. Last week, we read from Ecclesiastes, which I reminded you is often called the strangest book in all of the Bible. And so naturally, this week, today, as one of you pointed out earlier, we read from, well, the most provocative book in all the Bible. Yes, the Song of Songs is a love poem. Or it is a collection of shorter love poems, songs that do not hold back in any of their ancient detail, and a collection that confidently proclaims the power of love that leaps and bounds into our lives like a Montague disguised at Capulet's costume ball, only to sweep us off our feet and change our lives forever. And yes, that was a reference back to Romeo and Juliet. What's fascinating, though, about this whole book of songs is that there's no mention of God anywhere in it. It's one of only two books in the Bible about which this is true, Song of Songs and the book of Esther. Neither mention God directly. Boy, would I have loved to have been a fly on the wall during the canonization process as bishops gathered together and decided which books would make the cut and which ones would not. I wish I knew their reasoning behind including this one among the wisdom books that we find in the Old Testament. But no matter their rationale, I am glad they chose to include it And we know that the Holy Spirit does often work in and through our processes. But I'm glad that this book was included. 
because the testimony of the Song of Songs offers us a new perspective from a minority voice. You see, this is a love song from the ancient world and one that came from the pen of a young woman in love. And hers is a song about an embodied, life-altering, mutual love which stands in contrast to the rest of the biblical narrative about what love looks like. Most of the Bible's great love stories begin with more pragmatism than romance. This is just how it was in the ancient world. It was typical for marriages to be arranged for things like social gain or the exchange of wealth or perhaps most importantly for the integrity of the family line. And with all of that to consider who had time for love. Okay, there's at least one love marriage in the Bible. Can you think of it? Remember Jacob and Rachel from the book of Genesis? Jacob falls in love with Rachel and negotiates with Isaac that the two of them would be married. But let's not forget, there is a catch. When Jacob thinks he is going to marry Rachel, it's not Rachel at all, but Rachel's sister, Leah. Because, and I quote, It was not the custom to give the younger daughter before the firstborn. How romantic, right? So Jacob again negotiates with the father and finally does get to marry the one his heart loves. But the song today, the song that Karen read so beautifully a minute ago, is no ordinary song of love. No, today's reading gives voice to a young woman who is claiming her desire, claiming her lover as her own, and she is doing so proudly and poetically. Like others before and after, this author, the one of this love song, invokes the language and the imagery of nature to describe the way that love has bounded into her life like a gazelle or a young stag, verse 9. The way that he enlivens and awakens her senses like the springtime flowers emerging after the icy winter, verses 11 and 12. And the way that her lover summons her away to join him. Verse 13. It shouldn't go without noting that the song ends with a promise or a benediction of sorts, and if we ever quote the Song of Songs, it is this one line, my beloved is mine, and I am his. Verse 16. Remembering the words of the the author of the Song of Songs, can't you just imagine young Juliet standing on the balcony, of course draped with roses, as she gazes down upon Romeo offering this very benediction from the Song of Songs instead of the Shakespearean version penned thousands of years later? It makes me wonder if Shakespeare himself had spent some time reading this very text before he sat down to write that famous interaction. Well, if he had, he would have found himself in very good company. Because although we like to avoid this particular part of the Bible, probably and honestly, because we don't really know what to do with it, Shakespeare would have been in good company. Because there were many people of faith who lost themselves in the pages of this text for centuries and centuries. 
One of the earliest Christian historians, in fact, who wrote in the first century, went by the name of Origen, and of the the Song of Songs, he wrote the following. Blessed is he who enters holy places, but more blessed is he who enters the holy of holies. Likewise, blessed is he who knows holy songs and sings, sings them, but much more blessed is he who sings the Song of Songs. A thousand years later, Bernard of Clairvaux, another mystic kind of person in Christian history, sees the songs, sees in the songs not only a blessing, but also a connection between both the church and the individual and the lover referenced in the ancient love songs. Each one, the church and the individual, Clairvaux writes, is captivated by the love of God, bounding into and out of our lives like a gazelle, never lingering too long in one place and always calling us, beckoning us to leave our more stable and sensible lives behind to throw it all away in the pursuit of love. As Clairvaux reads the Song of Songs, he questions the young author, wondering what does she mean when she says, he is for me and I am for him. Is he the same as her, as she is for him? How can any of this be, he wonders. Maybe she could just explain it to us, he writes. And then he continues wondering through his writing, or maybe the secret is for her alone. Isn't that beautiful? Maybe she could explain it to us, this mystery of God's love, or wait a minute, maybe the secret is for her alone. Mm. Even as Clairvaux struggles to work out the finer mechanics of the timeless love described in the song, we have to wonder about ourselves. Are we the church A church that is captivated with the love of God? Is that how you would describe us? Are we captivated by the love of God? Can we see it when it bounds into our lives like a young stag, a gazelle from the cliffs of yonder? And are we the people of God who make up the church equally captivated by God's love? Do we know its language and recognize its voice when it calls to us, beckoning us to come away, to chase after love, and to leave more practical matters behind? Can you even imagine a world full of people, full of churches who were captivated by such a love? What would happen to us? What would happen to our world if we all allowed love to bound into our lives and point us in a new direction. This is precisely how another medieval mystic described the whole spiritual journey. Teresa of Avila, known best for her writing called The Interior Castle, describes the spiritual journey as if we were all moving through the different rooms of a mansion. Do you hear echoes of John's gospel there? In my father's house, there are many rooms. 
And so Teresa writes that the spiritual journey is like moving from one room to the next, each one of us in mansions or lives of our own, drawn deeper and deeper into love, which means we are being drawn closer and closer to God. For Teresa, who reflected regularly on the Song of Songs, the journey of faith, the way of love, needed both devotion and embodiment. Christ has no body but mine, she writes. He prays in me, works in me, looks through my eyes, speaks through my words, works through my hands, walks with my feet, and loves with my heart. It makes me wonder, thinking about all that the mystics have written about this holy book, What if despite the fact that God isn't mentioned in the text, the Spirit is indeed moving in the ancient song, reminding us of all the good things that God has in store? And what if that is what the ancients saw in these words, in this poetry, in these songs? What if in it they saw a bold and beautiful reminder of God's clandestine love for us? Love that arrived the moment God laid eyes on us. Love that ignored all the evidence pointing toward disaster. Love that was willing to risk being hurt, being judged, being broken, even being betrayed. Love that insisted itself. Love itself was the only way. What if Love itself is the good news for us today. What if that is the whole of the good things? What if we could accept that love? What if we could accept it and allow it to point us individually and together as Christ's church in a new direction? What if we, like Teresa and Clairvaux and Origen, like Romeo and Juliet, like the young lover of Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 8 through 17, what if we gave ourselves over completely to love? What would happen? I mean, it's hard to even imagine, because I'm not sure outside of fantasy and literature that it's ever even been attempted. Well, maybe except for in the life of Jesus Christ. And you know, I don't think it should be lost on us that the story of Romeo and Juliet ends at a grave and the story of Jesus culminates at a cross. Maybe love's direction is more risky than we ever imagined. You know, another thing that the ancients used to say is that the words of scripture were black ink poured onto a white page. And that there's all that white space left. All that white space. Waiting. Waiting there to be filled in with our questions, our responses, our longings, our debates, even our doubts, and hopefully also a little bit of our additional wisdom. I suppose we're simply waiting, 
waiting to find out something only time will tell. Maybe we are all waiting, waiting to see if our contribution to those holy pages, our story, our song, maybe we're waiting to see if it was also a love song. Oh God, may it be so. Amen.